0: Did you know a turkey puppet once ran for the presidency of Ireland? Did you know that meat once rained from the skies of Kentucky? Did you know that there was an emperor of the United States for a while? Then listen to the Wiki Ship Down podcast.
1: We live in an age when the sum total of humanity's knowledge can be found in your pocket on a smartphone at any given time. But when that knowledge is peer editable, like it is on Wikipedia, what does that say about mankind? So follow us down the digital rabbit hole as we drink, joke, and curse our way through the random button on Wikipedia and see where our journey through humanity's knowledge takes us.
0: While you're at it, follow us on all social media at Wikiship Down. I'm Ruth Ann.
1: I'm Ryan. And be sure to find us every Wednesday on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or wherever you listen to podcasts. All right, we're rolling. Oh, does this does this all stay in?
0: It's going somewhere. It's always going somewhere. Counting us down, baby. Three. White gloves. Two. Fancy hat.
1: So many keys. You're listening to Missing Out with Lex Michael and Tari J. Let's start
0: the show. Hey guys, welcome back to Missing Out. I'm Tari J. I'm Lex Michael. And uh, if this is your first time listening, what we do here is we introduce each other to different media, whether it be movies, music, television, spoken word, but also experiences, things that people have done, like traveling abroad, baby. We introduce it to each other. We introduce it to you, the audience. We look back on it, see how it's built us as people and what it's like to experience it for the first time. And we reflect we are the retrospective that's introspective
1: man i feel so serene in this moment
0: as you should i feel
1: like i'm an excellent and capable hands
0: oh good lex where can the people find you on a regular basis
1: uh, i'm on the all the medias that are have all the people on them mm-hmm. uh, at the lex michael is my handle Ooh, around the places nice going to the place going to the spot hell yeah being there being social hit
0: that follow and this is what you got so sorry Ooh, and i'm tari jay you can find me at tari jay that's t-a-u-r-i-j-a-y and if you are looking for us the podcast you're like how do i follow missing out because i don't care about those two guys i like this entity yeah i only care about them as part of a unified collective right then you can go on twitter baby and you just follow us at missing outcast m-i-s-s-i-n-g-o-u-t-c-a-s-t baby that's all you gotta do and maybe you're like oh damn i want to listen to these guys and i'm on podbean right now but i want to use my itunes we're there or you're like i want to i want to use my google play store we're there or you're like oh man stitchers where it's at we're also there wherever you are so too are we all right that's enough of the housekeeping um, it's, a, it's a big day
1: tari it is do you know do you know why why firefox is back
0: wow wow
1: Wow, so We're... if you're tired of your browser and want a browser you got tired of a long time ago, <laughs> Firefox, Firefox is back, kids.
0: Oh, it's not it's your a... dad's
1: Firefox anymore. <laughs> it's fiery, foxier Firefox. Ooh, yeah. More fierier than before. Ooh, you know how
0: I like my foxes. Real fiery. <laughs> We're really on fire. Very yes. much on fire. Um, I didn't know it had gone anywhere, Um, but that's good to know. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, guys, boot up your Firefox <laughs> and Google a little fun little story called Le Samurai. Um, I have bad French pronunciation, but it's basically the Samurai in French. It's a uh, 1967 French film starring Aidan Delon.
1: Elaine, Elaine Delon.
0: Elaine a- Delon. Already,
1: I'm already jumping
0: French. on your jazz people and their language, um, and Francois Pierre, Pierre, Pierre. I'm just going to let you flail <coughs>
1: over there <with> that <laughs> <one>. <laughs> <laughs> At least three different cultures would be wildly offended by what just happened. <laughs> uh, and it's directed
0: by Jean-Pierre Melville. This close? Jean-Pierre Melville? Yeah, that's pretty close. Yeah. Well, I think
1: you're really you're, you're like hex key to this entire process today is uh, it's not Jeff, because there's only one F. When you drop the other F, it
0: becomes Jeff. 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 Je m'appelle Jeff. Merci beaucoup.
1: Pardon. Ooh. I'm waiting for you to exhaust your French.
0: Almost there. Jeff. Animal, animo, um, and that's Por, it. Pourquoi? That's all the French I got. Pourquoi? Hmm. Yeah, I missed that one.
1: Um, je suis un pont de terre. Yes, you are something.
0: Uh, I think that's potato. I
1: think it's like apple of the earth, Pond de terre. Hmm. Je suis. Je suis
0: un. Uh, je suis un pamplemousse? Yeah! Hmm. Uh, pamplemousse is, uh, pomegranate, right? Not pomegranate. Grapefruit? No, grapefruit. I
1: am a grapefruit. Je suis un pamplemousse. All right. Um, so. Come on,
0: man. I'm teaching you totally practical conversational French here. Okay, totally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Monsieur, monsieur, je suis un pamplemousse. Monsieur, monsieur, mademoiselle, mademoiselle, je suis un pamplemousse. Just a lot of. Quoi? Quoi? (laughs) Oh! omelette de fromage. Oh yeah, that's one. Yeah.
1: S one. I feel like if you're a member of a certain generation, like within a particular age range, you know that one from uh, Dexter's Lab.
0: Yep. Yep. Uh, <laughs> um, Lex, so you recommended this movie I to did. me. You said it is quote unquote um, a personal favorite. I can't
1: claim to have like a a favorite movie because how do you narrow that down to one out of all of the films that have ever been made, it's also not really uh, consistently possible for me to do a, a real, like, uh, locked-in top five, top ten. It's very difficult. Yeah. But when I think about movies that are, like, okay, my favorite movies, um, you know, like uh, uh, Jaws and, like, Silence of the Lambs and, like, all that jazz start popping into my head, and Les Samurai is one of the movies that I keep, I always come back to. When I think about, like, my, my favorite movies and what, like, just where where my 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 heart and my head go immediately, like one of the first images that pops in in my brain is the image of um, and actually Criterion uses it for the the box art on their releases. Yeah, uh, image of Elaine Delon in profile as Jeff Costello, uh, and he's you know he's looking into the mirror. You can't see the mirror in the image, but it's just him in profile with his hand on the hat, doing the, the like stroke motion he does when he when he puts on the hat to just like make sure he's completely correct before he heads out. That. That image, yeah, um, that image, but only as an extension of what it represents, right? And and um, just as a piece of iconography for this movie that makes me feel a very specific way, and I don't think I get what I feel specifically from this movie anywhere else. What is that thing I feel specifically? I know what it is, but I have consistently struggled to put words to it in a way that I feel fully conveys it. So my hope is that we can dig into some of this and maybe. Uh, maybe get at some of what it is that that excites me about this movie without maybe me being able to distill it to one or two sentences.
0: Right. Okay, that makes sense. Um, this was my first time even hear about, hearing of this movie, um, and you I think- have
1: you have heard of plenty of uh, plenty of things that have been influenced by it. And like yeah. I want to jump in and hit like not right this second, but t- maybe. Towards the back end of the conversation, just throw out a few things that were definitely and very specifically influenced by Les Samurai.
0: Yeah. Um, yeah. I was doing a little research and it was just like all these, all these very big popular directors and, and actors and things of that sort have been influenced by this movie and essentially kind of made their own version, just like swapping out different aspects of it.
1: Well, all right. I guess we just obviously, since, so on that note, right, like, um, The killer, John Woo's the killer. John Woo's a big fan of Melville and of this movie in particular, but also uh, with uh, like Walter Hill's the driver, like the the sequence right where where Jeff is uh, going through the process of of setting up his his hit, and he goes and he gets his license plate switched out. For example, like elements like that. That Walter Hill would pick up and run with for his movie, and then of course the driver was essentially the template for every getaway driver movie that's been made since. You know everything um, coming up through as recently as uh, uh, Nicholas Winding Refn's Drive and Edgar Wright's Baby Driver. Um, there, there are more. I'm sp- I'm like spacing right now, but those oh like a, a Ghost Dog, Way of the Samurai, the Jim Jarmusch movie. Jim, you hear me? You hear me doing? I'm still doing it. The Jim Jarmusch <laughs> movie with uh, Forest Whitaker pulls a lot from the Samurai as well. Okay, there are you know there are more. Madonna had a song about Elaine Delon at one point,
0: right? Um, uh, yes, it it intrigues me. I guess this was maybe the first of its kind. Like I know that noir existed, has existed for a while, and this is like a different v- form of noir. Like he, instead of following a detective, it's more you're following the criminal, and you're you're kind of having going through his existence. Um, or at least the internet classifies it as noir. I feel like it's definitely, oh, it's definitely noir for
1: sure. Um, and yes, of course, noir very much existed prior to this. I mean, we're talking like, this is the end of the sixties. So this was also, this was after the big like noir movement in Hollywood. Right. Um, but, uh, no, even, uh, even Melville himself had kind of dabbled in this world before. Um, you know, like uh, the obvious example that, that pops up in my head is Bob Le Flambeau, which he made uh, prior to this. And it's not, it's not, you know, that that's a story about a, a kind of down on his luck, washed up gambler who gets involved in planning. This elaborate heist is almost like one last big gamble. Yeah. Uh, very different world, very different type of story, but still with some of those noirish elements. elements. Um, so as far as, uh, a first of its of its kind, broadly speaking, I don't necessarily know that's the case. But as far as a specific combination of elements and influences poured into that genre, yeah. right? Because this is an interesting melding of, uh, you know, I think of French New Wave picked up a lot of uh, influence and uh, influence and inspiration from a, a lot of older American gangster movies, mm-hmm. uh, and this one is no exception. But then also, of course uh, uh, adding all of the, you know, like the, the, the samurai elements to it, right? The Japanese, uh, lone warrior archetype, um, as well as, yeah, everything that was happening in French cinema at the time. I feel like it's just an interesting, almost the way, like, um, almost the way, like Tarantino is known for not even necessarily, uh, 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 creating elements of out of whole cloth but creating something entirely new based on uh, uh, putting a whole bunch of pre-existing elements together Hmm. in a completely unique way not dissimilar to that although i would argue that that maybe uh undervalues what he's able to do with with story and theme gotcha okay um i feel like that was super rambly that, this happens a lot on this show. I'll just go for a little bit, and then I'll come back, and it's like I stepped out for a
0: minute, and be like, "Did what that other guy said make any sense?" <laughs> uh, don't guys, don't don't show them the sausage. Don't don't let them know. As as long as you end it like very strongly, everyone's like, "Dude, so good." Go clack. Go that sounded. Clap. That's totally sounded smart. I um, buy it. Yeah, I mean, because the gist of it was that like it's not that it was the it was it wasn't the first of its kind but it was uh, a perfect combination of a lot of elements that people liked so it's like if you had five movies with um like interesting aspects of them they were all okay and then you managed to take those five elements and create one fantastic movie
1: it's not the not necessarily the first of its kind but probably the first of its kind of its kind
0: Ooh! Ah! Yeah! Uh, it didn't really make sense, but you you get the idea. Oh, it made all the sense and dollars. Um, but uh, yeah, I uh, I found the the structure of the movie to be very interesting.
1: Yeah. So I want to right like I I, I kind of want to stop for a minute and just get your feedback on it, and then address a piece by piece maybe some of the thoughts you had as becomes appropriate. Gotcha.
0: Um, so I, I hadn't read the, um, I hadn't read the synopsis before I started watching the movie. Okay. Um, I just jumped into it cause I was like synopses give away things. So I just want to kind of like jump in and, and see what I can take in. So like, I didn't. And it's, I only knew that it was a noir film, so I didn't know that he was an assassin. So, like that whole first scene, I was like, "Okay, we're getting into the the like <laughs> this dude sure gritty. has a big bedroom." <laughs> yeah, well, ugh, that that dingy apartment made me like sad. Also, we um, open
1: we open with this quote that is attributed to the Book of Bushido, and Melville was always pretty open about the fact that he just made that up. Right. Yeah. Um.
0: I I think. Uh, Roper or Ebert one of, Roger Ebert was really angry that it was a made up quote Why? I don't know I think I, I read it that like um, I think he just wanted something that was actually from the book of Rashido as opposed to like making it up yourself. This is um, this
1: is something that Melville did a couple of times when he made Le Silk Rouge uh, a little bit later he opens it with a quote that is just completely, he attributes it to a, a source as well
0: but like it's completely made up Yeah <laughs> Um, it's like I like my iPhone, Harriet Tubman, and you're like, why? <laughs> why is this a thing? Um, but yeah, um, I so I spent the first because it's ten minutes of straight non-dialogue. You spend the the first. I want to say three to four minutes are credits over him just like laying down smoking
1: uh and by the way so uh uh allegedly now i don't know how many of these stories are apocryphal because a lot of the stories about the the making of this movie the development the development of this movie come from melville himself yeah and melville you you can tell he's got a bit of a he's got a wry sense of humor and he really likes t- tall tales and he likes to embellish not not lie in his stories, but I strongly get the sense that he's embellishing a little bit. But when he talks about pitching the story to Elaine Delon, he's talking about, he's laying it all out for him and he gets about like 10 minutes in and Elaine Delon essentially says, you know, we've been, we've been going for about 10 minutes and there's not been a single word of dialogue. I will do it. (laughs) Interesting. Yeah, apparently that really excited him. Yeah. But I wonder, right, I wonder how common that was at the time. This is this is a, a, a question that I don't actually have an answer to, so maybe I shouldn't be asking it. But uh I'm, I'm curious as to how... I feel like that was more uncommon, right? It's like, well, it's a, it's a movie now, and they, they've been talkies for a little bit, and what's what's all this business? Nobody's talking to each other. What's he doing? Look at this guy walk around. He sure likes cigarettes. Why didn't he talk to his bird about how much he likes cigarettes? <laughs> have somebody say something. This making me very nervous.
0: I mean, but that's more of a modern sensibility. I feel like in older movies, you were able to have these long establishing shots and, and really kind of take your time just digging in with a single character whereas like now yes things have to move and they have to just constantly be doing things and expositing reasons for for things that are happening or going to happen and and foreshadowing and all these different like things just to keep people engaged where as I feel like this movie was not concerned with like rushing through anything. It was yep. like you're going to watch this guy put on his clothes, you're going to watch him walk up to this thing, just long shots of him just like walking from one place to another.
1: Yeah, now look, I'm 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 the first person to very quietly get a little bit wrangled when uh, People who are more accustomed to modern sensibilities in filmmaking take a quick look at something a little bit older, a little more methodically paced. And yes, a little bit slowed down. And they they write it off as like, oh, boring. But I do completely understand that if you're not like I wonder what the pacing felt like for you, especially given that you you didn't know even really what the story was, let alone the way in which it was going to be told. I can't fully fault anybody for being lulled a little bit. Like, if you start this movie, like, at, you know, at, at midnight and you're a little bit drowsy, I can totally understand and not fault you for being lulled. But that, too, to me, that doesn't speak to any anything, of, like, the movie is boring. It's just, mm-hmm. it is so... It's it's a combination of elements, right? It's the pacing, it's the aesthetics, it's how like cold blue everything is. Yeah. It's the it's the score, it's the fact that you can hear rain so frequently, and that's an incredibly relaxing sound. But yes, very, because you just call it very very intentionally paced. Yeah. Um, but you talk about right, like just going through every step of the process, like point for point, detail by detail by detail, and then. Following him through the entire thing. It's not, you know, it's not in quick cuts. You're just there with him as he does every single step of the process. Yeah. So like later in the movie, when he's going to this payoff, you're with him as he's trying to just on foot lose his police tail. So he's just going in and out of buildings, up and down staircases in one door of a building, up and down some stairs and out a different door on a different level just to lose his tail. Right. And you're with him through every bit of that process while he's walking around Doing hmm. And so if you're not prepared for that and you're not quite in the proper mindset for it, if you're looking for like if you're looking for John Woo's the killer, this isn't that right. But but to me like that, that only adds to that un like this weird unspeakable thing that I get from the movie that I still can't quite put a word to.
0: Yeah. I mean, yeah, maybe it's, it's meditative, contemplative. I think that might be. An element of it okay I could see those um, I I feel like that opening sequence of like just silence kind of primes you for the general pacing of the movie it lets you know that like yes you're with this character for the long haul and and this is who your focus is and, and this is the general way that things are going to go so like even though I didn't know what was going what was necessarily happening at the beginning I, it, it kind of caused me to lean in to really uh, figure out what the little pieces of or the little actions that he was taking were. So like in, in order, it basically he um, gets ready. He, he goes to this car. Takes out his million keys. He's got a he's got um, a key
1: ring with a bunch of like essentially like identical looking skeleton keys. Right. And he gets into the car and he just one by one by one, he takes each key off of the ring and tries to use it to start the car. Right. And what I love in this in this moment, right, he's going he's doing all this business with his hands. And as he's doing all the business with his hands, like taking one key off after another and putting it in the ignition and trying it, his eyes never Leave the street in front of him. He's just yeah. always looking straight ahead scanning the street for any potential threats any potential witnesses mm-hmm. And it is only once one key works and he has to flip the the gear shift that he breaks His focus on the street in front of him,
0: right? Because um, yeah, you also don't want to look super suspicious like constantly fiddling with things Um so it also just kind of builds that character in terms of how methodical and and how focused he is um i think i was reading one just like general character description where they were talking about how there's never a moment where you feel like he's completely in like he, you you never feel like he's completely um i guess the i don't remember the exact words but like There's always a piece of him that's concentrating on something else, which is, like, him thinking a few steps ahead.
1: Well, he's always—so it's interesting that you phrase it that way, right? Like, that there's a piece of him that is elsewhere. So uh, Melville says that the character is a schizophrenic. Like, he says that he researched schizophrenia heavily before going into it, and that was something that he wanted to— Obviously, the story isn't about that, but he wanted to bring elements of that to the character, this guy who is always— Split in these different directions and how he's fractured. Now, each piece of the job, like, and I think this kind of gets at what you're saying each piece of the job is this fractured piece of it, it's like a different part of him attends to it, while a different, like another part of his brain is on a different step somewhere else. Right. And I think too, some of that comes across in Elaine Delon's performance. Uh Very early in the movie, he is just completely ice cold, stone faced, efficiency. And the more and more things start to unravel for him, he doesn't very, very rarely, almost, almost without exception. I think the only time you really see him break outwardly. Is When he first gets back to his apartment after he's been shot and he's completely in private nobody else sees it, mm-hmm. but With the exception of, of that and I'm, I'm struggling to think of any other Part of the movie where he outwardly seems to crack um, It's still the completely stone-cold exterior, but the eyes are just going crazy like there's a there's a feral kind of madness in his eyes Yeah,
0: that that
1: sort of betrays his completely cool exterior
0: mm-hmm yeah, I can't stop thinking about his apartment and how the bathroom is right next to the kitchen. Right, that's um, not sanitary. It's not sanitary. But anyways, um, I don't know why that popped into my brain. Um, I think because of the bird, um, which is his only friend, and that's sad. And his bird
1: uh, his bird, tips him off about the when his apartment is bugged. The bird's like, look out, your apartment's bugged! <laughs> and he's like, thanks, bird. Yeah. Too bad he leaves
0: the bird behind.
1: No, I know and the bird. The bird, apparently, uh, according to Melville, passed away uh, around when shooting was taking place. Melville had his own studio, yeah. and it burned down during the production of *The Samurai*, and apparently, yeah. the poor bird oh, uh, no. was a casualty of the fire.
0: Um, can I tell you a thought that went through my head in regards to the bird? Sure. So there was this. Mo- There's the moment when the police are breaking in to plant the bug. Oh, and you notice too, um,
1: like the police, like to to do their thing, like some of the methods they employ are similar to Jeff's. I mean, like the the key ring being one example.
0: Exactly. Um, I thought that for some reason, I thought that they were gonna murder that bird. Um, I thought,
1: <laughs> like, this is this this is uh, something I can I can tell you this without spoilers. I, I think. Uh, Something that popped up on Twin Peaks is uh, the execution of a bird because the bird is a potential witness.
0: <laughs>
1: really? Yeah. Um, yeah, man. Waldo the bird. Waldo the bird gets whacked because he's
0: a potential <laughs> material witness. Um, it made me think more of like Dumb and Dumber when they go into <laughs> the the uh, the uh, the guy's apartments and like pop their heads off, like the bird's heads off, and I was like. Was that a reference to this? Am I about to see some bird murder? Um, but that never happened <laughs> bird. Um, I just it made me sad um, for a moment and then I realized the bird was the bird was the friend all along. the bird was the friend he, he always needed um, but speaking of the police, um I really I really enjoyed the roundup sequence. Um, where they brought every dude who ever had a trench coat and hat on. Um,
1: right? And he's literally, he's just, I forget the numbers he gives, but he's basically just like, let's just sweep a ton of people from every district. Right. And it really is, right? It almost feels like, because there's this sequence where, so jeff has has very meticulously set up an alibi for himself mm-hmm. involving his his girlfriend uh, whose name is uh, uh, jane, jane? lagrange yeah. played by natalie delon who was elaine uh, delon's wife although I, I don't know if they were still married at the time and a- according to melville uh the scene when they filmed their goodbye scene for the movie that night they split for good which is so like melodramatic that, right. that one one questions its authenticity ever so slightly. But that is what, that is what Melville says. Um, but he sets up his alibi. He shows up at her apartment at a certain time and he makes sure because he knows that her regular steady boyfriend is going to be showing up uh, back home at a certain time. He makes sure to get back before the boyfriend's arrival and he makes sure to be seen leaving the apartment. Yeah. So when all of these suspects are brought in uh weiner uh who is the boyfriend uh you can pronounce it right pronounce it weiner but it's like because every time that every time the the officer says it it just sounds like he's intentionally slapping him in the face with it um so brings him in and you know is trying to get a description because he's a potential witness and the guy's like oh you know i'm not very observant so maybe he was coming from my place maybe it wasn't i don't know He knows right Uh, and so he's trying to basically the the detective has all these guys It's like it really is like they had a hat and coat database Mm -hmm. interestingly If I'm not mistaken, and you don't really think about it in 2018 looking back on a late 60s French film But apparently the hat and the raincoat like that look was already a bit of an anachronism um, mm. At the time, so it really seems like they had like a hat and coat database, and they just brought in everybody who was on this database. Yeah. And as a, as a bit of an experiment, the detective has Jeff and a few of the other people like switch hats, switch coats, and so uh, we- Weiner. Um, yeah. He, he's brought in, and he kind of looks at everybody. He's asked like, "Do you recognize anybody?" And he says, "Okay." He thinks about. it, He's like, "I have an amalgam image of, or a composite image of the man I saw." And it's like it was, a, it was a coat like that, was a hat like that one or that one, and then he looks right at Jeff and he's like in a face like his. Mm-hmm. And what I what I like about this is he's clearly attempting to to like you know finger uh, Jeff for the crime, yeah. but accidentally ends up exonerating him in spite
0: of himself. Right. Um, oh, that guy. I I do also like that moment when the I, I have to say that I really liked the detective. Like the main detective, but I liked this that moment when the the boyfriend's like, Ah, oh, I'm not a detective. And oh, then I'm not, I'm not the, very observant. Right. And yeah. then the guy's like, You lies. Yeah. Y- 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 you know. Well,
1: his, after he gives the, he's like, Clearly he saw it. And the, the detective's like, Oh, just imagine if you were observant.
0: Mm hmm. Yeah. Um, but I also, I yeah, I really liked, I, I assume, I forget the detective's name, uh, and I assume Francois Pierre Perrier is him um that's that's my assumption don't correct me um he's actually the uh the character name is just the superintendent got it well yes so the superintendent um i really liked him because he 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 had a lot of just like personality um and there's there was also a sequence of him just like walking through a bunch of doors for a while it was just like (laughs) from room to room to room to room door to door to door to door to door to door door. Um, which I just I just liked Um, but beyond that I really like that scene with him and Jane where he goes in and he uh, basically is trying to uh, I guess extort her into, into, like, co- going back on her testimony, and his tactic is just verbal abuse. Right, essentially,
1: he just call he like straight up calls her a whore. Mm hmm. Um, and that's after they come in and just toss her apartment just to do it. Right, like just to let her know that that they can. And she's got there's there's a bit of an exchange where I'm paraphrasing, but she's essentially like, "What what what authorization do you have to come in here and do this?" And the dude's just like, "I'm the minister of coming in and flipping stuff over." <laughs> do what i want they just flip (laughs) over one of her drawers (laughs) yeah yeah in that moment in that moment
0: the superintendent not not being super friendly not very neighborly no but he's he's like those classic like dog with a bone detectives where he's like i know it i have no evidence but in my gut my police gut
1: and Ooh, the thing yeah. is, right, like, it's a little bit it's fucked up, right? Because he's he says to her, he's like, the truth is whatever I say it is. And yeah. I'm going to essentially I'm going to find the information that supports what I say the truth is.
0: Mm-hmm. The
1: thing is, he's correct about what the truth is. The other thing
0: is, like, that's a questionable way to approach police work. Right. Because if he wasn't, then this would be her, like it would just be blatant harassment. <laughs> yeah.
1: I mean, look, it's harassment either way. Right. But harassment... Uh, completely unfounded harassment in any way
0: yeah um which is crazy um i so i have i had a question throughout this movie because and this will show how much of a dumb non-historian i am um but like I feel like some of the technology they were using didn't exist in the late 60s, but I have no idea. Like, they were using car phones, um, that, like, radio, de- uh, the, the, like, radio signal uh, devices they were using when they were following Jeff. Um, and then there was another, like, wire, I imagine, existed. Um, but, like, there was another thing that they were using that I was like... Is that a thing, or is, are they are they are they being like this is cool sci-fi? Um, um, I uh, honestly, I I am not one hundred percent
1: sure. My guess is, uh, at most, they were things that existed but weren't necessarily in wide circulation. Right. Like I want, I think car phones were a thing. I'm trying to remember. Did a car phone? Did somebody have a car phone on Mad Men at any point? And everybody was like, "Wow, that's so insanely fancy! Right. A phone in your car!"
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> that's how they all sound on Mad Men. That's why yeah. they won so many awards. I've watched. I know. Uh, they're like, you guys don't sound like that in real life. What performances? <laughs> um, but I, I want to say that this was this was stuff that probably
0: did exist, but was just not in wide circulation. Yeah. I'd imagine. I mean, uh, I just thought it was really fascinating. Uh, because it's, it's, it's like when you're watching The Wire and you're like, man, they're technology old. And as like the seasons go on, you see it get better and better. So like they go from pay phones to flip phones to like cell phones and like all that stuff. So I thought it was really uh, fascinating just to kind of watch, especially with that moment when they're planting the bug and they have that fucking giant hunking bug and they're like, maybe something smaller maybe the smaller one this is
1: not very discreet why do we why do we even bring this one like we have the smaller one why do we even bring this at all this we don't have pockets um yeah yeah i like i do like that we hang out with them while they hammer a little nail into the wall (laughs) and try the giant one and close the curtain and go Nope. And open the curtain and take the big one down and put the little one up and like pull it, pull the tiny little antenna mm-hmm. up and then put it like they have a little loop on it and they hang it on the little nail that they put <laughs> into the wall. <laughs> but I do like there is something I actually think meditative, which I which I said earlier, and I'm I'm glad that I stumbled onto that. I think meditative is is maybe the word that gets closest to the heart of what I feel about this movie. And like to me, what what I, I understand some people might point to as, as being boring in their perception. To me, it is just, it's, it's it's similar to mindfulness, right? It's just staying in a moment and going moment to moment to moment to moment to moment. Yeah. And sitting in every moment, right? Because it's all just, it's the whole the whole thing is just a series of very intended methodical steps. Um. And there's something, yeah, there's just something I like about staying in every moment. Because especially a movie like this, any movie about like Hired killers, or crime, or whatever the shit, right? Like modern Hollywood sensibilities, just like quick cuts and be everything frenetic and go all over the place really fast. Blah 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 etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. Yeah, I appreciate a movie that is about some of the same some of the same elements, and is just so much more methodical uh, in how it lays them out.
0: Yeah, I mean, especially you would mention that some of the methods that the police were using were very similar to Jeff's methods. And I think that that's really interesting because we, we see how methodical he is and we see how methodical they have to be just to catch him. So I really like that parallel, Um, which yeah, yeah, I agree. Like we definitely wouldn't get any of that in like a modern movie, unless it was like, like a Terrence Malick film and you're just like, I guess we're just sitting in this.
1: Everybody would watch a Terrence Malick gangster movie, even if it was just Tree of Life with hats. uh, (laughs) Everybody would watch it. You'd need to talk about that movie. I feel like that would be a film that everybody would need to, like, they'd feel they needed to have an opinion on. Right. Uh, But I do like um, the hats. This is going to bring me back to, I really like the, uh, the theatricality. Of so much of it I love the, the theatricality of, of Jeff's he's essentially got a costume you know what I mean like especially given that the hat and the coat were already anachronistic as far as a, a look yeah um, I like that there's a certain performative quality to it I like that there is a, a theatricality to it and it, it extends to certain other people in this world including right like there's a moment I just think to me it's like the funniest moment in the movie uh, there's a moment where the blonde-haired guy, who he meets for the payoff, shows up in his apartment.
0: You mm-hmm.
1: know, just a wildly unnecessary bit of theatrics. He just punches through that glass panel with the gun mm-hmm. and shatters it when it would would have made far more sense to just step around the little the little <laughs> divider and come up behind him. But he's just I can I can picture him standing there thinking to himself, "Oh, he's gonna come up right here and like I'm gonna punch." And he's gonna be like, ah, and I'm gonna be like, that was awesome. And then he does it and he quietly goes, yes, I was right, that was awesome. (laughs) (laughs) Because, like, there was no, that's really a completely unnecessary move. He just clearly wanted a moment of theatricality.
0: Yeah. Um, (laughs) And he just, he wanted to hurt his apartment. He's like, I hate your things. He's um, like, if uh, <laughs> if you
1: live, you'll still have to pay to get this fixed.
0: <laughs> <laughs> um, I, and you bring up the blonde guy, and so we haven't really gotten into the like nitty gritty of the the main plot, which is essentially that like that Jeff was hired to kill a club owner named Marty. Yes, um, and then. In being picked up by the police he becomes a liability to the person who hired him so essentially uh the hiring guy betrays him and and jeff is being pursued by the police so it's like this double front thing that he's facing yes um which in and of itself is a really intriguing premise in it in addition to the way that it is executed where you're you're having jeff kind of spy his way through navigating finding out who hired him and finding out how to best the police and and uh figuring out like the basically at a certain point he just becomes like a dude trying to survive which i think is really interesting
1: yes and what i think is doubly interesting about that is that he's very so we talked about him being completely like a splintered fractured divided while this is going on right while every action he is outwardly taking uh, is is directly uh, apparently in service of his survival he's also throughout the course of this entire movie falling in love with and becoming increasingly obsessed with death as personified by the jazz pianist
0: interesting the the, the pianist signifies death
1: yes or at least in my in my reading of the movie
0: okay interesting um i I didn't, I, w- I was, I've been thinking about, I watched this yesterday um, in, in podcast time. Um, And so I was thinking about it kind of f- until we were recording. And I, I couldn't figure out what I thought about the pianist's role in the movie. Um, because your first interaction, she's just playing the piano. She is the only one who like, Really, legitimately witnessed Jeff doing the thing, and look um, he is
1: so when he steps out of Marty's office after shooting him, so right there, like right, clear look at his face.
0: Right, but yet she doesn't. Uh, she doesn't tell the police, and so then uh, the question arises whether she was paid off by the person who hired him to do so, and and so I I was trying to figure. I mean. I don't know if that was a purposeful mystery or just something that I was thinking about and and so like I was trying to figure out what her role in it and I guess this idea that she is that she's personified as death
1: it's it's less so there's a difference between i don't think she is death you know what i mean like Mm -hmm. like uh uh but she does represent the pull towards it for him right um not like i don't think she's an abstract the way i think david lynch would describe it right is an abstraction in human form yeah i do not think she is literally death given a body yes i do think though that she represents the pull towards death for him right and we see we see this very i mean to me very clearly in the final scenes of the movie
0: mm mm-hmm Yes, so I feel like when I when I was doing research, there are a lot of different people who are like inter- a lot of different interpretations of the ending of this movie. Right,
1: which which to like, it makes me so sad when people uh, talk about ambiguity and storytelling as if it is a weaker decision, like an inherently weaker decision. Yeah, because to me, like I I. Stories, stories uh, with that lend themselves that lend themselves equally to multiple interpretations, whether or not the artist is open about what their specific intention was. I love. I feel like you have to you have to be really good at putting your structuring your elements in such a way that five different people could come out the same uh, story from five different angles and come up with five different things, and there's nothing in the story itself that contradicts any of. Those five completely different interpretations. Yeah, I, to some people, I guess they they interpret that as meaning the story is not clear enough, and that's somehow a failing of the story. To me, that's the mark of a of an insanely well crafted piece of storytelling that will aff- that that it will affect so many different people equally strongly, but in completely different ways.
0: Yeah, um, it's well. That's interesting because I felt like it was a fairly like I I think. My reading of it felt st- fairly straightforward. Like, here is my interpretation of what happened at the end, and that, like, the last assignment that he gets from the blonde guy and his ultimate uh, hire was to kill the pianist so
1: it, um, yes there's enough there that you could you could definitely make that connection because the we don't hear uh, after he uh, the blonde guy offers him another contract yeah who the contract is for is never mentioned but right. there's the line at the very end when he puts the gun on her and she asks why and he says i was paid to right so that of course yes could very well and the most like the occam's razor of it all is that yes that is the one the the direct line from one to the other
0: yeah and so like with that information and the fact that the police were closing in on him it felt like he one decided to kill his hire f- just for betraying him in the first place but also like it, he knew that his existence would cause trouble for his girlfriend so he figured it was easiest to um have him go but also like complete the job because he's so meticulous uh, to the job that he's doing that he essentially it was like i'm gonna do this, but like know that ultimately it'll end uh the way it did right um so I mean, I feel like I guess technically another interpretation could be that he was the job like the 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 name given to him was himself, and so that was the way he chose to do it
1: right it's almost um, like it 's almost like all right well you gotta throw the match now right. Right, and and either way, uh, I think, and I think I'm actually mostly as far as the the uh, in the in the quote unquote real world, like the non thematic, non metaphorical layer of this world. Yes, I think I'm I'm pretty much with you beat for beat on all of that yeah but i also i like this idea that while all of this is closing in on him right the police are closing in this other this other world where he's now marked for death is closing in on him and he once he makes a decision right he's essentially given himself over to the idea of death he chooses clearly in taking out the the bullets out of his gun he is choosing death he knows exactly what's gonna happen and so as he as he's choosing his own end he's literally right he literally goes back back to the scene of the crime he's very open with his gloves very open about who who he is he just takes the gun out in full view of basically everybody yeah but he chooses to go and be with
0: death right
1: like very very literally in mm-hmm. those moments.
0: Yeah. Um, just a side note about that moment. I really like the bartender's just silent reaction as he's as Jeff is at the bar and just putting on those gloves. And you <laughs> he just, just see like, him like slowly, like moving away because bar, the bartender knows what's up. Like the bartender <laughs> was one of the only people who
1: saw him without very clearly seeing his face. Yeah. One of the only people who saw him exiting the club earlier. Right. And so, yeah, as soon as he sees the gloves, he's just like, nope. <laughs> also too Yeah he Regardless of what uh, How how metaphorical your interpretation Of the ending is uh, It is very clear that Jeff Has chosen this It is very clear in the final moments that this is what he wants Whatever that uh whatever the implications of that are this is clearly what he wants and apparently there was a version and you can find still images of this version there was a version of the ending that they shot initially where when he's when he's shot and he's dying he's got a big smile on his face mm mm-hmm. and uh, Melville was furious to discover that apparently Elaine Delon had made an incredibly similar performance choice in an earlier film of his, and just said, bleh,
0: bleh, 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 "Fuck
1: this, we're doing it different." <laughs> and so he he, uh, he does not smile anymore. But you can still find uh, still photos of the original version.
0: Yeah, I mean, I would have, I would have liked the smile mostly because it would be his last action is the first time he shows emotion, which I think is an interesting. I guess thematic thing, um, but I also do like the way that it ended with him still showing literally nothing on his face as he's getting murdered, which I like. I like, you know, it's consistent. It's total consistent characterization. But it's also
1: it's not it's not nothing, right? It's not now. It's yeah. It's definitely not emotive per se. But I feel like there is still a lot going on under the surface. Even yeah. though it's not like Elaine Delon is not giving an incredibly expressive performance. I feel like his eyes do do a lot.
0: Yeah. Um, I mean and he also like threw his hand upon his head and like stumbled back, gave a big monologue, um, rolled around a couple times. Uh his his eyes turned to X's for a little bit, and then he like flailed. He about did about like on the a twelve
1: lap Formula One
0: race real quick. Yeah. As uh, as
1: he was going like just like did a few laps around the track.
0: Yeah. yeah. It was really it was really, It was very impressive. Yeah, it's impressive It was, it was, impressive I was as like,
1: moving. Wow. This like all of a sudden there's the pacing of this pic he's like cutting 12 times a second. <laughs> I don't know what's going on.
0: I mean, it's a metaphor. That's you're not supposed to. Uh, yeah. It's that art house shit. Oh hell yeah. Ooh. You're
1: not even supposed to understand this movie.
0: <laughs> um Uh, I was thinking about if they were to remake this movie, which, why would they? Um, I would really want either. um, uh, Oh, man, I just forgot his name. Um, He played Obi-Wan Kenobi as a young man. Ewan McGregor. Ewan McGregor. Um, I would want Ewan McGregor or um, Jared Leto to play the main character.
1: Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. I. Mm, I. Mm, I. Oh, I can honestly picture. I can aesthetically. I can picture Leto.
0: Yeah. You don't think he would nail that sweet, sweet uh, undercurrent of emotion? Only if he plays it as his Joker. <laughs> um, I would watch that. I uh,
1: honestly like. I think Jared Leto's a very good actor. Very good actor. I kind of just want him to only play his Joker in every movie he does from now on. And I don't want them to be DC movies. I want them to be like character dramas. Like nobody calls him the Joker. He's not the Joker. He's whatever character he is. But he's still like in the makeup. He's still in the whole thing. And he's still giving the exact same Joker performance. Oh, okay. But in a completely different context.
0: Um, <laughs> In my mind, I just imagine him only using the trailer lines, though. So like, it's a really sad moment. Everyone, someone just died. And he puts a, a hand on someone's shoulder and is like, this is going to hurt you a lot. Or something, or whatever. No, I like, forget what, what Like what before is
1: the... he puts the blonde guy in that death trap that he leaves him in. Oh, He's
0: yeah. Like, I'm not
1: going to kill you. I'm just going to hurt you really, really bad. Yeah. I also, I also we don't get the so okay so when the blonde guy comes in and has him in his apartment <laughs> and Jeff and Jeff turns the tables on him yeah we don't see it and I really wish I saw the sequence of Jeff just being like okay I've got the gun on you T- tie yourself up now <laughs> sit in that chair don't move while I noose you I like it yeah Ooh. we don't we don't see it but he leaves him in a chair with a noose around his neck uh uh Positioned in such a way that if the dude tries to get up, tries to move, tries to get up out of the chair, chair is going to fall, and presumably it will strangle him to death. Yeah,
0: um, which rough, harsh, pretty
1: harsh, much. bro. To be fair, he was there to kill him.
0: Was he there? He to did. Kill him, he though? did
1: mess up his. Uh, he did mess up his his glass in the apartment.
0: That's true. I mean, but he he was he, he was, was
1: there to either either get him to take this assignment or to kill him.
0: Right. You know, it's it's business, bro. Sometimes you just gotta merc a fool.
1: But I also like that he the the blonde guy refers to himself and Jeff as as not like um as as members of a certain a certain class or a certain part of this structure. Yeah, he talks about how the person that hired them is not like they are. Um, which assumes a certain familiarity, if not with Jeff personally, then at least very much the type of person he is and what he does and like what his utility in this world is, mm-hmm. which I think is interesting. And I love the idea that within this world, there's this like maybe a particular class of assassin that exists and is, and is hired by these people, and maybe they all kind of know each other.
0: Yeah, I would imagine. It felt like there was just like a network of assassins that were just n- not hanging out because that's not how assassins live their life, but just like... They're all in. They all like went to assassin school together, right? And are now just kind of like doing their own thing. And every so often they go to like a ten year reunion, and they're like, "Yo, what's your kill count?" And the other one's like, "Yo, I got fifty because um, that's how they talk in France. Um, they leave out letters. Fifty. Fifty. Um, but yeah, I, I because especially with that guy who uh, just exists to change license plates. Like it, it leads me to feel like this is just like a regular part of French living, you know, like you got your Doing upper crime. class, you got your middle class and you got your, your assassin class. Assassin class. Yeah. Um, uh, uh attend attend assassin class uh, this fall become one of the great assassins we'll show you our creed yep
1: see i pictured assassin class like almost like an ap bio style sitcom
0: mm. where
1: there's just a whole bunch of wacky antics and like you know the professor tries to like live his life and he's a little put upon but he also wants to be a good like positive influence and mentor for his students but they He also teaches them to murder people really efficiently. Yeah. So it's heartwarming, but also super violent. Like it'll appeal to
0: both Nora Ephron and Takashi Miike fans. Ooh. I've now that we're talking about it, I think there's actually a an anime with that premise. Um, I can't remember the name of it, audience. If you if you know what I'm talking about, um, please let me know. Uh. Uh, you know, tweet us at missing outcast. M um, i s s i n g o u t c a s t. Mailed it. Yeah. Because uh, I feel like that there's a very specifically a um, an anime about that. I know there's also, there's one where an alien um, is teaching a class and the premise that the alien gives the kids is that um, he's going to destroy the world in a certain number of days. And, um, and if they can kill him, then uh, then they'll basically save the world. And so it's them every every week. It's them like trying to kill him in a different way. Okay. Um. But he's like basically unkillable, or he always sees their plan coming. Um. And he's, but he's also really sweet, which is weird. Um. So they'll have like inner inner department or like interpersonal issues as students and he'll like intervene in a way that like helps them reconcile but at the end of the day he's like i'm still gonna destroy the
1: world if you're if you're listening uh you can't see it but when tari said intervenes he did like this sassy head bob yeah so does he intervene in a very sassy capacity
0: of course he does that's there's no other way to intervene other than in a sassy way
1: that's fair i suppose yeah Everybody's like he's is so clearly sassy. He must be right. Well, duh. Like no one's this this uh, cocksure unless they're correct. <laughs> um, I do not like that phrase. <laughs> the, the person I who's do... <laughs> correct is
0: the one that talks the loudest every time. It's true every time. That's that's how you know who is who's who's the rightest. Um rightness uh, truth is measured in decibels.
1: Right, he's so convinced of the of the of the efficacy of what he's saying that he's yelling everyone else
0: down. We better listen to him. Right, of course. Passion. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, we're we're running short on time. So are there more things you'd like to say? Anything um, you want to
1: maybe a few little things and I'm sure there are going to be things that like I'll be driving home later and be like shit I should have mentioned that. A couple of things. I I mentioned the aesthetics of this movie. I love the way this movie looks. Um, And it's all very cold, like cold, steely, gray blues for the most part. And uh, Jean-Pierre Melville talked about essentially wanting to make a color film in black and white. Um, so essentially have as close to a black and white color palette as he could, but with splashes of color, making mm-hmm. almost like a complete inversion from the aesthetic intention of, I think, our Missing Out Monday last week. I was talking about a bunch of Powell and Pressburger movies and how insanely vibrant and big and deep their their uh, color palette and color spectrum is. Yeah. Very antithetical to that. Melville was just like, too much color. Stop it. And <laughs> just very much. It's like, let's let's take it as close to a almost like a chromatic. Pattern as we can, yeah. and I think the effect is really nice. I don't know, like I, 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 I just like the way it feels, and it, it yeah. is so steely, steely cold. Mm-hmm. Um, the whole experience of watching the movie. Okay, sidebar, since I'm talking about aesthetics. Yeah, I don't. It's probably not super, super easy to find a screening of Les Samurai*. But I was fortunate enough, the very first time I saw it was, it's got to be the better part of five years ago now, was at uh, the CineFamily when there was still a CineFamily. Uh, Greg Proops, the comedian, was doing a live podcast and hosting a screening of *The Samurai as part of like an ongoing series he does. It's like the Greg Proops movie club. Okay. So he did, a, he basically did a whole, it was a live podcast. It was essentially a very long extended intro to the movie. And he, he I'm paraphrasing only slightly, but he compared the experience of watching the movie in terms of both aesthetics and just the tension of the entire thing from beginning to end. It's like chewing on ice cubes wrapped in tinfoil,
0: <laughs>
1: but aesthetically seeing the movie on film right and like you can't you've probably if you if you have like movie obsessed friends or you're i don't know a christopher nolan fan you've heard people go on and on and on at length about just aesthetically speaking yeah digital's fine but there is nothing like the experience of seeing a movie on film and on the big screen if there is a chance for you to go steal a samurai in a theater i highly 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 recommend it though again i don't know how frequently those occur i feel very i feel very lucky that i was able to catch it that way um what else i love the the white gloves i love what melville says about the white gloves which is essentially he's like that, that's a bit of a uh, bit of uh, personal iconography all my killers wear the white gloves they're editors gloves
0: oh really i
1: like that makes a ton of sense right you would wear if you're if you're handling actual film strips and you're cutting them in the editing room you would wear the gloves so yeah. as not to damage the film negatives i like the idea that his characters are essentially editing people out of life oh. and they and so they wear the white gloves i like that i think it's uh, it's cute, it's cute, cute that, aesthetic that murder choice. Very cute. Very cute aesthetic murder choice. And I guess the only other thing would be, uh, Elaine <laughs> Delon's life is fascinating, and he, uh, also had his own, let's, uh, charitably call them brushes with crime and the criminal underworld. Okay. Uh, I want to say very shortly after, within a couple of years of *Les Samurai coming out, uh, his former bodyguard was found dead and just dumped somewhere. And he was he was looked at. He and uh, somebody else were looked at very closely as potentially being involved with this crime. Interesting. Yeah, he had he had some ties. He had some funky he had some funky ties. But you know what, Elaine Delon, if I'm not mistaken, is still alive. So maybe I don't want to talk too much about Elaine Delon's criminal enterprises, <laughs> lest I get
0: Costello'd. That's true. You're going to go back to your apartment and there's going to be a blonde guy who breaks some window and he's going to be like be like
1: that was unnecessary. <laughs> <laughs> sit down in this chair and let me news you. <laughs> no. It's theatrics. Take this job. Um,
0: he's not like you and I.
1: But yeah, do you do you have final thoughts because I again, this is a movie that that always comes back to me when I start to I try to think about like, well, what what are my favorite movies? What are movies that just sort of sit Within me, you know how like something just becomes, whether it it happens the first time you see it or it takes, takes, you know, three, four viewings, you know, like you'll see something and it will just, you can't, like in this case for me, you can't necessarily put words exactly to why it is affecting you the way it is, but it just seeps into your DNA. Yeah. Like this is kind of like a dopey, simplistic way to put it, but like this movie is
0: what it's like a perfect distillation of what cool is to me <laughs> um, that's it's funny that you say that because that's how a lot of people described like drive and a couple other movies that were were Take that were inspired by this movie, whether so,
1: directly or indirectly, right? Because right. obviously, like Drive, the the direct line to Drive comes from Walter Hills, the Driver. But as we said way earlier, you can trace a line from the
0: Driver back to Les Amour. Right. I mean, well, uh, I think in something I was reading, they were saying like Drive, based on the Driver, both take the the general um, like uh characterization of their main character from uh this movie yeah um and so like you can you can basically one for one them um my final thoughts were that i really liked the movie i um i i like how simple like i love simple storytelling and like especially going into it not knowing what the premise was i was able to piece together all the different aspects i really liked the um like the visual aesthetics like a lot of the long shots um that just kind of like let your character just walk and 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 breathe and and right like you get this sense of place
1: like you get this sense of just being in these spaces in france with this guy as he wanders around also uh really dig the sound design of this movie and i'm a weird something i really like is like very intentional sound design on shoes mm-hmm. on like hard shoes i really like the sound and you hear it a lot in this movie because it's it's uh jeff kind of wandering around by himself and sometimes there's score but sometimes you just have the the, the ambient sounds yeah and the the sound design on his on sh- uh, his hard shoes where you get the like tap 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 of every step but you also get the very light scraping of gravel simultaneously with every every step i don't know why man sound design on hard shoes and movies i always like when they when they hit it like when it's when it's just in that perfect sweet spot i find it bizarrely satisfying Mm -hmm. um i dig it but also right it goes back to that meditative thing in this case goes back to that meditative thing i was talking about because
0: sometimes because you like asmr
1: I don't I don't hate ASMR uh, it gets me in the zone uh, but the uh, the uh, one, there's a right a, a mindfulness technique where one thing somebody will suggest to you maybe is just be become attentive to your steps mm-hmm. and even even count your steps and not like in a let, let me get my steps in today kind of way yeah. but just a, something to completely key into and focus on staying mindful and present in the moment same same bit within this context same basic principle applies yeah every step just every step forward every meticulous detail and we're there with him for so many long stretches of step after step after step after step which Mm -hmm. which is in large part this movie in a nutshell
0: right and I, i i think that part of that also is that it allows you to kind of really try to think about what's going through this character's mind. Like in those long moments when you are just kind of stepping with Jeff, uh, I feel like a lot of movie makers would, would be really inclined to fill that in with like dumb narration or whatever of him being like, the police are after me, and so now I have to go and Which I'm on my be, way and blah 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 It would dee be dee a
1: begin. very noirish touch.
0: It would be, but like that's not what this movie is. Exactly. Like that's not the purpose of it. Like you are you're not supposed to know what he's thinking. You're supposed to um always like there's cause you know that there's something a little bit off about this character, but you 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 it lets you kind of put yourself in his shoes. It's like when you have your silent Protagonists in video games, and that it allows you to really experience those moments firsthand right
1: you can project yourself onto them so entirely right and of course like when we think of quote unquote great performances a lot of the ones that come to mind right away for a lot of people are some of the really big emotive performances and some of those are, are truly excellent but I do think there is something to be said for a performance that so enables you without it feeling like this person's doing literally nothing yeah. that so enables you to project onto them whatever it is you're feeling whatever it is you bring to it
0: yeah, and I don't think people usually realize how hard it is to give an understated performance. It's pretty tough. Yeah, because um, it's it's all concentration, and it's all, like, physical discipline.
1: And the camera picks up every little twitch, every tiny motion of your eye, mm-hmm. every... So to give something that... that where where you are still giving a performance but are enabling yourself to be a blank enough slate for that audience projection that yes that's that's a fine line
0: yeah um so yes i recommend it to uh anyone who is wants to dive into an influential story something that uh you can just kind of sit back and enjoy um especially if you're in like a real real chill mood bro just like Lay back, smoke a cigarette Or don't, cigarettes are bad for you you. Um, And just like Let the movie wash over you Um, Don't watch it on Con TV because uh, uh, their Subtitles are bad Okay. Um, so don't do that. Do I-
1: watch it on FilmStruck, who one day will totally sponsor us because I keep plugging them. But legit, is so good. Um, yeah, you can you can definitely check it out on FilmStruck, and I know you can do like a free trial or something. Yeah, uh, worth it. You can also check out a couple other movies by Melville. I'm not sure if the, I believe there's they've got Bob LeFlambeau available available for streaming. I don't think they have Le Silk Rouge right now. But I know they've got like Army of Shadows and uh enfant terrible um a couple others, but yeah, yeah you you could check it out there, and I know their
0: subtitles will be on point, yes, um, so yeah, I highly recommend it, um, yes, and as mentioned, I love the shit out of this movie, just not on con t v noted, yeah. Um,
1: oh, also, uh, one last fun fact. So it was released, obviously, uh, initially in 1967, uh, but was uh, released in America finally in uh, 1972 yeah. on the heels of the massive success of The Godfather. So, in a very cynical move, uh, the American distributors retitled the movie The Godson. So, if you happen to see some very odd art where Elaine Delon is dressed similarly, but that The Samurai is not the title of the movie as stated by
0: the art, mm-hmm. that's why. Um, you got to cash in, baby you know just like Atlantic Rim um, and all those other like knockoff movies you gotta cash in you gotta be just adjacent to the popular movies ooh (laughs) (laughs) All right, I'm gonna wrap this up Uh, Um, can you imagine
1: the board meeting where that's it that's the whole thing and then everyone in the room goes ooh (laughs) simultaneously and then they all pass around a document and sign it (laughs)
0: I, I can't no one, imagine No one it.
1: reads it They just all maintain Perfect eye contact With uh, each other As yeah. they like sign And slide it forward <laughs> Their signature's kind of All over the fucking page But it's uh, Now it's law uh, yeah. passes into law Now it's how movies are made <laughs> It's everything Is just adjacent To everything else Which is kind of Where we're going
0: anyway I mean kinda um, You know We gotta get that Sweet established IP No one's gonna watch it If it's original Dude you, when, you when is Disney Rebooting Le Samurai Ooh, soon. They, I, I'm sure they still got you and McGregor in their pocket. Like he works for Shield now. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, mm. Hmm. Mm. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Um. All right, guys. Thanks for joining us here on Missing Out. Um. Once again, you can find us on Twitter at Missing Outcast. That's M I S S I N G O U T C A S T. And you can also find Lex in places
1: in you can I'm right here hello uh, yeah I'm all over social media at the Lex Michael I also was on a, uh, another episode recently of Lucretia Lyons Mrs. brightside podcast that just dropped the other day uh, in uh, following the passing of Anthony Bourdain uh, we wanted to sit down and talk a little bit about depression our experiences and uh, why it's such an important conversation to be having right now being being open being honest and reaching out to to others to each other and taking care of ourselves as well. So go, go check that out. And it's a great show, so go check out Lucretia's show, uh, obviously, uh, in general.
0: Nice. Um, yeah, I, I assume that you guys listened to the preview episode a couple weeks ago. Great show. Highly recommended friend of the show. So, like, dude, check it out. Uh, also, very uh, great conversation. Um, and you can find me at Tari J, T A U R I J A Y. You can also find me on the Ride or Dice podcast. It is an actual play podcast using the Savage World system set in space. I play a tentacle monster. Uh, it's very fun. We, uh, have a couple episodes launched now, so you can go catch up and we should launch the next episode on the 25th of this month. So that is that. Um, make sure to go on to iTunes or Google Play Store or, or Stitcher and leave us a review. That really helps us bump up in the charts and helps other people find us. Um, and we read those here on the show. So as you review, make sure to listen for your review, baby. Give us them five stars and we'll tell everybody about it. That's how it works.
1: And also, uh, once again, as always, you guys have been reaching out to us on social media, which means a lot to us we love it when you say hi because we love you and also let us know what you think we're missing out on if there's something that you love that means a lot to you that you think we might like as well please let us let us know
0: yeah I would love to do fan missing out stuff oh it's gonna happen Um, whether it be like movie shows or whatever also experiences if you're like Bro, if you're you're in the L.A. area, you gotta go to this thing. Then we'll do it, and we'll talk about it.
1: Uh, Yes, that is a true thing that Tari just said.
0: Hell yeah. You know,
1: if Tari says it, it must be true. He's like the internet. You're goddamn right.
0: You're goddamn right.
1: That's why he, he's always the loudest in every room he's in. That's true. Because he's, he's always the
0: rightest. I'm the rightest. There's a hole in my pocket. There's zoo. I don't have a socket. Um, anyways, alright, uh, thanks I again. I got
1: blisters on me
0: fingers! <laughs> <laughs> I'll see you next week! <laughs> oh, man. Stupid.
1: I gotta put on my, my white gloves and my fancy hat. Hell yeah. Hats, dude, I need... I wish I looked that cool in hats. I'm gonna get a facelift to look like Elaine Delon. That's what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna get like extensive plastic surgery. Good. And then I'm gonna look dope in Ooh. any any hat.
0: Hell yeah. Ooh. Don't forget to pop that collar.